0: Welcome to the National Democratic Institute's Changing the Face of Politics podcast series. In these candid conversations recorded from home, politically active women from around the globe interview each other about the male-dominated world of politics. They're the best examples of why we need to move faster to reach political parity between men and women before the middle of the next century and change the face of politics. In this special episode for Pride Month, Filomena Wankenge, racial justice activist, interviews Governor Kate Brown, governor of the state of Oregon, about her experience as a feminist politician and what it takes to get more women, particularly LGBTQI women, into politics.
1: Hello, welcome to this episode of the Changing the Face of Politics podcast series. My name is Philomena wan and I'm an activist and co-founder of Freedom Fighters DC, a group of activists fighting for change through organized actions and mutual aid. June is Pride Month, and we are very excited to be featuring the Governor Kate Brown as a guest in this episode. Governor Brown is the governor of the state of Oregon and is the second woman elected governor of the state. I'm looking forward to this conversation because I've honestly appreciated the effort that you have made for marginalized people to have access to voting with Stacey Abrams. And and I can't imagine what it's been like to take the risk you've taken and successfully have achieved high office.
2: Philomena, I'm just delighted to be here with you today and looking forward to our conversation. And I too am inspired by you and your amazing activism and literally putting uh, principle into action.
1: So keep up the really great work. Thank you. So this month is pride month and we are celebrating LGBTQI people around the world. And as the first openly LGBTQI governor in the U S what do you think is necessary to get more women who identify as LGBTQI into politics and leadership? Well, uh, let
2: me talk a little bit about my path and what I see is incredibly important. I think to get more women and particularly more women who identify as LGBTQIA into uh, political office, it's gonna require commitment. It's gonna require building a pipeline and it's gonna require all of us to work together to really create culture change. So let me talk a little bit about building the pipeline. There are two organizations that I am most familiar with Let me focus on victory fund because of your question and they are working very hard in communities around the united states to identify leaders in our community um, that might be ready willing and able to run for office and they hold leadership trainings to help folks um, get prepared to run for office and that includes basics communication skills learning how to fundraise but also um, talking about issues. It also requires um, building the pipeline and organizations like Victory Fund help create a pipeline for the future. There are other organizations out there that I'll talk uh, further uh, along. But the other thing that I think is incredibly important is I have a saying, you can't be what you can't see. And it's so important for LGBTQIA kids across the country to see role models. Folks like Secretary Pete Buttigieg, U.S. Senator Kirsten Sinema and others across the country, folks that might look like them, that is also incredibly important. And I think it's all of these pieces. And then obviously it's continuing to build a network, creating community connection and helping others. All of those pieces are instrumental to diversifying the pipeline and making sure that more LGBTQIA women uh, move into office, political office.
1: It's so inspiring because it's such a beautiful thing to see you advocate and give people a platform that identify with your path. And so I definitely wanted to know what motivated you to get politically involved. Was there a personal connection to an issue, a political party, or uh, a family member that motivated you to take this direction?
2: Well, there's a couple of things. Let me be absolutely perfectly clear. I've been a feminist since the day I was born. I remember uh, convincing my mother uh, that Roe versus Wade, the court decision in 1973, was a good thing. And I've been fighting uh, for feminism uh, for as long as I can remember. But it was really my experiences as a young lawyer uh, that uh, created the momentum for me to come to the state capitol and fight for justice and equality. And that was experiences I had as a young lawyer when I went to work every single day, afraid that I was going to lose my job because of who I was in love with at the time. And I vowed that if I ever had a chance to right that wrong and to end uh, discrimination against LGBTQIA people in Oregon, I would take that shot. And fortunately, a few years later, I had an opportunity to come to the Oregon State Capitol as an advocate on women's issues and had an opportunity to work uh, to tackle discrimination and to end uh, discrimination in this state, and I've been fighting ever since.
1: <laughs> and keep up the good fight. And I heard you mentioned that you've been a feminist since the day that you were born. Why is having more women and girls engaged oh. in case of politics important? And uh, what impact of their engagement have you seen throughout your career and development? Oh my gosh! So.
2: I truly believe that when our leadership table, the people making decisions is diverse, and that obviously includes the voices of women and women of color, that the public policy that develops as a result of that table is more reflective of our communities. uh, It is more respectful and it is more resilient that is much more likely to last because it does reflect the community so much better. And I will just tell you in my 30 years, if you can believe that, in the state capitol yeah. in Oregon, and as I see more women and particularly more women of color, it really changes what the agenda is. And the agenda becomes what is uh, so important to our communities of color and our women and our families across the state. And that's a really, really
1: good thing. And so do you think that now it's becoming easier for uh, women to engage in political leadership positions, or do you think it's still fairly as hard? I would say, yes, it is easier, but change
2: takes time. And as I reflect back, one of the bills that I worked on as an advocate, as a lobbyist in the 91 session was legislation that allowed parents to stay home if their children were sick without fear of losing their jobs. We now call it family medical leave. And Oregon became one of the first states in the country, in the entire country, to pass family medical leave. And I realized that I could make a difference. But I have to tell you, or sort of holy grail around this policy, family medical leave, was to make sure it's paid, because we know that for middle class families, they could take the time off. It was just uh, lower income families that really struggled. So we've been working since 1991 to pass paid family medical leave. And we finally passed it as governor, I signed it into law in 2019. So change is hard, change takes time, It requires passion and patience and persistence, but it's absolutely worth it. In terms of, is it easier for women to get elected to office now than it was 30 years ago? I would say so, yes, because voters are more used to seeing women in uh, these elected uh, offices. However, I would just tell you that women being elected to executive posts, particularly women of color, is extremely challenging. And we know this, right, because we see very few women governors across the country, uh, a little more than a handful. And obviously, we just saw our first uh, woman vice president. And yes, it's very, 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 very exciting. Voters see women in elected office in legislative positions because women are They see women as culturally more able to deal with the legislative process, right? Women tend to be more collaborative or uh, congenial, and they see that as a very comfortable space for women, a more natural space, if you will. Mm -hmm. In terms of executive office, this has been a huge change, a huge challenge to elect uh, women to these posts, and we still have our work cut out for us. But change is coming,
1: that I'm sure of. And to uh, follow up uh, uh, with what you just said, actually, perfectly. Uh, So do you think there is a difference in the way women and men lead and engage with others? I think so, yes. When you ask someone just on the street
2: what their description is of a leader is, it's generally a male person uh, riding in on a horse to save everyone, right? My vision, and I think a lot of women's vision of leadership is very different. We roll up our sleeves, we bring people to the table and we figure out how to. Uh, we call it GSD, get stuff done. And it's a very collaborative collective effort. But when you do that, um, you lose your focus on one person and it's more uh, a uh, ground up movement and it is less likely that the woman elected official at the table will get credit. And we're seeing this very, very realistically play out nationally right now throughout the pandemic. If you were to ask most folks who they see, of, uh, see as leaders throughout the pandemic, they're likely to name a couple key male governors, some Republicans, some Democrats. But as I look uh, to the work that my women, my fellow women governors have done, both Republican and Democratic, it's absolutely phenomenal. You know, you look at what uh, Governor uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham has done in New Mexico. She's dealing with a very vulnerable population, a very diverse population. She's number one in terms of getting uh, vaccinations into arms. That's extraordinary. And I rarely see national articles giving her credit. Governor Gretchen Whitmer done an amazing job battling her Republican legislature and people who literally wanna kidnap her. Um, She's getting great press, but uh, it is the men that you hear about, the male governors that you hear about, and that has to change. And I absolutely believe it will change over the next few years as more uh, women come into these posts, and as uh, folks across the country begin to appreciate and begin to really sense the critical importance of a collaborative, collective style of leadership.
1: Thank you for that. <laughs> Yay, woman. <laughs> <laughs> definitely always a woman and I appreciate you and all the governors and the work that you guys are doing during this crazy crazy time I see you and I appreciate you just wanted to let you know Um, thank you so what surprises you uh, about being in the public political office I know you've been in it for about 30 years but are there any uh, surprises that still come up Philomena absolutely every
2: single day but I I think for me, the sort of the biggest eye opener uh, for uh, this uh, past six years that I've been in the governor's office has truly been the impact of emergencies, uh, natural or other, on our most historically underserved communities of color and low-income communities. So one of the first tragedies that I Uh, saw was a mass shooting at a local community college in Southern Oregon, very small community, uh, lost uh, uh, nine uh, students and a faculty member. It was horrific. And the impact on the community was devastating. Uh, uh, And to this day, the pandemic and the impact on our communities of color and our low income communities have been horrific. We had uh, the historic wildfires last fall. Um, We had 4,000 families lose their homes. And of course, it wasn't the wealthy mansions that were lost. It was the mobile home parks. So what this has taught me is that we have to re-envision and co-create emergency management and preparedness systems that really respond to our communities of color and our historically underserved BIPOC, low income and rural communities. And that is going to be re-envisioning, co-creating emergency preparedness by centering their voices in such a way that we have systems in place that will be responsive and meet their needs, provide the tools that they need uh, to thrive and be resilient and adaptive. And that for me has been uh, the biggest lesson through all of this.
1: And so do you, um, you talk about, uh... Underserved communities, especially within the time frame of COVID, uh, do you feel that um, you that your colleagues share the same view and um, seeing it as something that's imperative and implementing laws that actually cater to these communities, so that if something un- um, unfortunately does happen like this again, that they're not underserved and that they are taken care of. Well, uh, here's what I would say. Um, Throughout the pandemic,
2: governors across the country, particularly under the prior administration, um, we didn't have a federally coordinated response. And we were literally, um, there was no playbook, there wasn't a guidebook on how to handle a pandemic. We were literally being innovative and creative and pragmatic with what we had at the time. The, The issues around racial justice and how we work to eradicate racism in our systems and our tool in our cultures and our institutions is very much the same way. We know how racism was built brick by brick. We don't really have a good sense about how you systematically uh, eradicate it. And so I am working with a racial justice council that I created uh, to uh, center the voices of black and brown indigenous communities uh, of community members and center their voices as we work to uh, develop budgets and policies to eliminate racism. I see this as a moral imperative it is absolutely the right thing to do. I'm not sure that more conservative governors see it the same way, but I'm guessing they see it as an economic imperative. And so I think that's how we can align and how we can continue to move the country forward in terms of tackling all the issues that we have to tackle with a racial justice lens at the very forefront.
1: How do gender equality, inclusion and democracy work together in your mind? And how do you see this interacting with the movement for racial justice? So there's absolutely no question that the women's
2: movement has primarily been a white middle-class movement. And I, I think I see that it is incumbent upon those of us, and I would put myself in that category, our good intentions are not enough. We need action. And again, for me, that means centering the voices of Black and Brown and Indigenous women in our work moving forward. So what does that look like for me? That looks like investing in candidates who are um, members of these communities. It means mentoring these candidates. So for example, I invested in uh, and am mentoring an African-American woman who's running in a very challenging primary election for governor. That's the kind of work that needs to happen. It means investing in candidates of color early on and providing both the support and the mentorship that they need to be successful. And it means um, as we are developing, whether it's a feminist platform or a racial justice platform, that those of us who have had an opportunity to lead, um, that we let others, younger generation, more diverse generation, step up. Philomena, leadership is a muscle. It only works when flexed. Anybody can do this. And it's so important that we develop the sort support systems and the networks to allow our younger sisters
1: uh, to lead this country moving forward. What would you say is one of the biggest challenges that you faced in your leadership and just finding yourself as a leader, as a woman, as one could say an ad activist um, in some <laughs> form, um, and I just wanted to know that because I know it hasn't been easy and it's challenging. So uh, I, I I think
2: uh, the biggest challenge uh, that we face and that I have faced is how do we let folks know, uh, the majority population know and understand that. Diversifying the state workforce, that ensuring that our agency directors reflect the communities, that our boards and commissions um, represent um, the diversity of Oregon, that our judges are a diverse group of people. How do we help those in the majority population understand? that this will make the world a better place. The question really is what's in it for me? And I both understand intellectually and feel that by making the pie bigger, that that is a good thing for this country and for this world. But other folks feel that they're taking their piece of pie away from them. And that is the challenge I think we face not only as a state, I face it as a leader, but as a country.
1: And what will you do to accelerate the pace of change on women's political empowerment in the next 10 years? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see. So
2: I I mentioned Victory Fund and their work to grow the pipeline. Uh, The other organization that I see happening around the country that is really helping women is uh, Emerge Oregon. And I know there are Emerge programs in states across the country, but literally you apply and you get accepted into Emerge and it's like boot camp uh, for folks who want to run for office. It gives you basic tools, communications, learning how to fundraise, and most importantly, it builds a network. Just to give you a sense, the uh, majority of women Democrats in the legislature are from the Emerge program, and that tells you how instrumental it is um, to giving women uh, the skills and the support they need to be successful in elected office. It's for the first time ever, the state house has a majority of women out of its 60 members, and that's a
1: really good thing. Again, go women. (laughs) (laughs) So what are you most optimistic about um, in regards to woman empowerment, what our future is gonna look like as feminists, as womanists um, going forward? I am
2: most optimistic about the next generation, your level of confidence, your communication skills, your tech savvy. uh, There is absolutely no doubt in my mind, you're not gonna only shatter the glass ceiling you're gonna break it into millions of pieces and create a whole new level. And that's what gives me
1: hope for the future of my state and for the future of the world. Well, thank you, Governor. It's been a pleasure to not only speak to you, but to get so much insight on what it's like to be you um, as (laughs) (laughs) as a politician, as a governor, and as a member of the LGBTQI community. And we thank you for all that you do and for advocating for us and fighting for our rights to vote and good luck. Thank you, Philomena. And we didn't even talk about voting access. We can do that
2: next time. Thank you for your great work. Keep it up. We can do this.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Changing the Face of Politics podcast series. To learn more about the series and NDI's initiative, please go to NDI's website at ndi.org.